on the flight deck. Crews are now manning for the next launch. It's time to clear the flight deck and catwalks. Stand well clear of all jet blasts, prop parks, and exhaust. It's time to start up the GO aircraft. Let's start them up. Hi, I'm Dave Baronic, call sign Bio. I was an F-14 Rio and a Top Gun instructor, and I'm one of your hosts for the F-14 TomCast. Today's episode covers Operation Enduring Freedom, coalition combat operations in Afghanistan, which started in 2001. And I'm Craig Snyder, call sign Crunch, and I was an F-14 pilot and also a Top Gun instructor, and I'm your other host today for the F-14 TomCast. Now, I suspect most of our audience remembers when the war in Afghanistan was front page news, and some of you may have even served there. Our guest today is former F-14 Rio Mike Peterson, call sign Tongue. He flew combat missions in Afghanistan with VF-213 and has some incredible stories to tell us today. Tongue, welcome, sir, to the F-14 TomCast. Hey, thanks for having me here, guys, and a uh, pleasure to be on the TomCast. Awesome. Well, Tongue, stand up. Tell us about yourself. Where are you from? How you got commissioned? Where you from? Uh, how you got into naval aviation and how you got into the F-14? Sure. Uh, Philly born and wa- raised, so I'm an East Coast boy. Uh, my dad was a Philly cop. My mom was a teacher. Uh, so grew up in Philadelphia public schools. Uh, my parents sold uh, everything that they saved up for myself and my brothers to send us to a private high school. And uh, and I played this awesome sport on the East Coast called water polo. And uh, they wanted me to go play down at Navy. That's the only reason I wound up in the Naval Academy. Trust me, I didn't have the grades, didn't have the aptitude, uh, but I could throw a ball while swimming. So uh, once the Navy played uh, four years of water polo there, uh, came upon service selection. When I went to Navy, um, yeah, the, the movie, the first Top Gun had come out and thought that was kind of cool. Uh, but I was going to be a Navy diver, was going to go EOD, uh, do uh, special operations. And my eyes went from a little off to a lot off, as they tend to do in college. Uh, but I was still correctable to 2020. So I had to have an audible during senior year. And I'm like, all right, what am I going to do? I'm certainly not going to go drive a ship. Uh, Okay, hey, I'll go do the NFO thing. That sounds kind of cool. So selected NFO, uh, non-flying officer. I think it stands for, I I have a paper somewhere that says that. And uh, went down to Pensacola and VT-86, you know, the standard uh, pipeline that everybody goes through. And then I thought, what do I want to do? And uh, A6 was going away at the time. Uh, kind of saw that writing on the wall that it had its last legs. Didn't know the Tomcat was going to wind up in the strike fighter role, uh, but really loved the, you know, the the mix it up, fly around, uh, you know, do your math on a roller coaster type of stuff they had us doing down there and the A4, TA4 rides. I mean, I barely fit in that damn thing. I had to go like this to shut the canopy. But uh, So when I, did you get to Pensacola? Oh, shoot. It, it was 19, uh, graduated in 90. So it was okay. – uh, yeah, down there, the last of the A4s and T2s and, and stuff, but uh, selected uh, East Coast fighters, uh, wound up in VF-101, and then uh, hit a great streak of squadrons along the way. So uh, you know, I was blessed to be in Tomcats, and 
I'll tell you what, um, taking on that strike fighter role, I mean, the fighting thing was awesome, but uh, outside of a couple of missile shoots and, and stuff, everything I did in the Tomcat was air to ground oriented, you know, uh, thanks to the, the lantern targeting system and uh, mainly did the FAC A mission, was out there doing close air support and, and forward air control uh, for certainly in the, in the wars that I was to. So now, yeah, let's talk about that. We we did a uh, an episode on FAC A, and so has Jello done one of that. So many of our our uh, who's that with? That was with uh, PK. We did that one with, right? Yep. And I think you were at Swatsland with PK at the time, were you not? Yeah. So we we started off, you know, PK and, and Brew out at Ensoc Brian Brewrud and a couple guys, you know, the guys that had gone through Mots. Um, you know, with the Marines, kind of got that mission adopted for FAC A, and then. Uh, I went through the syllabus and then I was teaching it. I was a FAC A instructor mm-hmm. uh, at Watsland helping to train up those crews. And then I got the pleasure of being on my shore tour, getting called up and going to fly with, you know, VF-55, you know, VF-14 and 41 over in Kosovo. Did I mean, <laughs> I went over there, flew a few sorties with them, FAC A, you know, in the war and got to do that. Um, but uh, right mission at the right time for the right platform. I mean, the F-14, specifically the F-14D that I flew not only in Afghanistan, but over in Iraq. Um, that thing was minus a couple, uh, some ordnance that we should ultimately put on that aircraft uh, and, and a couple of systems that would have helped out. But in terms of endurance, comms, connectivity, radios, JTIDs, all the stuff that we had, the, the ridiculous number of expendables. I was carrying 540 flares is a FAC A, three bowl rails with 160 apiece and two buckets. I mean, they didn't have enough handhelds in country to shoot me down as long as we were putting out flares. So that that the F-14 was a FAC A machine, and, and I had the pleasure of doing it in three different wars. Amazing, incredible. Well, when you talk about Kosovo, we had uh, Snapper Bull uh, mm-hmm. in our Kosovo episode. And, and just for the uh, audience members who were – not paying close enough attention when he said VF 55 and then he said VF 14 and 41 together. So that's pretty clever actually. So thanks for introducing that. So what all squadrons, what all Tomcat squadrons were you assigned to? Yeah, I started out as a, as a young guy in VF 142, the ghost riders uh, flying the F 14, a plus then called the F 14 B. So the big engines um, that squadron decommissioned. So as a JO, I did a second uh, squadron tour. So I was over at VF-103 when we were still the Sluggers. And then when 84 went away, we we became the new Jolly Rogers. And that was the first deployment of both night vision goggles and the lantern targeting system. And when I say night vision goggles, uh, to date myself, I'm talking the original cat eyes, uh, the cages with the combiner lenses and like... I flew with those. Yeah, kind yep. of see some shadows, and I was happy when we went to the Anvis. Um, but got to do the first, uh, kind of really get on the ground floor of both night vision and the lantern targeting system in, a, in an operational squadron. From there, I went to Top Gun in 97, so I uh, was not an instructor, but went through the course, and then uh, went to Swatsland, Strike Weapons and Tactics School Atlantic, um, as the as a strike fighter tactics instructor. So it was there flying with uh, all different squadrons out of Oceana. And this was the time when, when we foolishly gave Miramar to the Marine Corps and everybody was coming east. So we had a, a weapons school staff for half the fleet, but the whole F-14 fleet was going to wind up out there. So spent a, a good long time over at Swatsland. Then I went to my Super J-O tour uh, with VF-213, and that's what we're here to talk about today. 
Uh, yep, was on tour with the Black Lions. Got, got my hat on for those on the audio only. I'm tip of the hat to my Black Lion hat. The, the F-14D version of the Black Lions. Uh, okay, so, yep, yep. So went to the uh, and uh, was on deployment during 9-11. And then uh, came back, had to do a super J.O. tour. So I kind of extended all along the way. Two J.O. tours, extended a year in Swatsland. Uh, was supposed to leave October 1st of 2001. Uh, from the Black Lions, was supposed to get off in Bahrain, fly to Monterey, go to safety school. That never happened after 9-11. Then I did my department uh, head toward the Bounty Hunters of VF2, also F-14Ds, and uh, got extended there because we wound up in a little thing called Operation Iraqi Freedom. So I got to kick that thing off and got extended there. Um, Then I went on to do joint stuff and teaching stuff wound up uh, actually behind the light blue line at the Air Force Academy as a exchange instructor for my last three years in the military before getting out. Awesome. I appreciate that, that summary. Cause we started talking, we just do we dove right into there talking about bowl chaff and bowl IR and everything. I'm like, we're going to confuse all everybody here real quick. So appreciate that quick summary. Um, so bio, I think uh, you got the first question here. Tony, let's jump right into it. You, you, um, you, you already said you were on deployment when 9-11 happened. And I'm looking at your career. You are, you are pretty well experienced. What were you guys uh, doing the, you know, on September 10th? And what was it like being on a carrier on deployment on 9-11? Uh, on September 10th, it was Groundhog Station for us. You know, I'd already deployed um, uh, a couple uh, uh, Atlantic cruises and VF-142. Uh, Same thing with VF-103. This was going to be my first Westpac. So going the other way to uh, to the Persian Gulf, but pretty much that's what we expected. So we had gone and done a couple port calls. We had trained all the way across the Pacific. Keep your training and readiness up just as you normally do. Um, we had a scheduled turnover. Uh, we had the carrier coming out of the Persian Gulf. He'd come out of the Straits of Hormuz. We were due to do a turnover with them. And then we were going to transit through the Straits of Hormuz into the Persian Gulf and do our standard Operation Southern Watch, you know, go into the box, you know, things that, that I've done every other cruise. And that's what we were, were geared up and prepared to do. And that was our mindset at the time. Uh, I remember being in the wardroom where you tend to hack out, I was up in the dirty shirt, up in the front wardroom, and somebody said, hey, some some jackass flew into the World Trade Center. And we're thinking small, civil, you know, uh, yeah, you know, some little plane, you know. Or, yeah, that's uh, what I thought when the first one happened. Yeah. Yeah, and we're, we're all up there and we're, we're eating chow and we're, we're shooting the shit. And someone's like, hey, did you hear some jackass flew into the World Trade Center? We're like, oh, what an idiot. You know, and, and then moved on with the conversation. Oh, and then um, next thing you know, I mean, you know, it seemed like the next thing we're going to general quarters, like like real general quarters. Like this is not a drill general quarters. And, and I think it's the first time in my my time in the Navy where we are no kidding going to general quarters for a real world thing. That's not a drill. That's not some training or exercise. And we all bust down to the ready room and we're watching the replay of the second aircraft hit the tower and the smoke and hole from the first one. And it was surreal, you know, but, but also we're like, Oh my gosh, America's under attack. We're out on deployment. I wish we could get back there and help what's going on. You know, we didn't know what was going on in the world. Little did we know we were the closest carrier to the action. Cause if you think about where we were just east of the Straits of Hormuz, 
we were just south of Pakistan. I mean, we were already on station for what was about to come and about to become Operation Enduring Freedom. Didn't know it at the time, you know, on the you know on September 11th when it was right. going down. Uh, but it became readily apparent that we were going to be the tip of the spear in this thing. Uh, which, funny enough, little side note. So is is uh, some of the planning started coming in, and we started figuring out, hey, uh, this was this was orchestrated overseas. In fact, it came out of the Middle East. In fact, you know what? It, it's Afghanistan and this Osama bin Laden guy, and we're going to go in and and we're going to we're going to throw a little counterpunch here. The initial orders that started coming in on the planning and people started showing up at the carrier to help us with the planning and stuff. And this big this big machine started coming up. Uh, Operation Enduring Freedom was not originally called Operation Enduring Freedom. Everything that started coming out on the carrier was OIJ, which was Operation Infinite Justice, which was way too cool of a name. And I was like, this rocks. And, and then they, they kind of softened it a little bit. But we started getting the, the planning and the op orders and started doing the strike planning. And, you know, everything from there just, uh, you know, just followed. So when were the first? Well, t- tell me, tell us more about the strike planning. What were you guys expecting to do? I mean, what I, I remember being back here in the States when they said, you know, a terrorist network and we'd already struck them before, hadn't we? With uh, T-Lambs or something or we tried to. Yeah, it's 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 interesting, right? Because what what's the target set, right? It's right. One- you guys are a conventional, you know, Mach two, all weather, and you're going against. Yeah, you think back to Gulf War One, right? Okay, we're going to go in. There's going to be a tank battle in the middle middle of the desert. There's strategic targets. Um, there there's sector operation centers and all this stuff. I mean, uh, I was in Kabul, uh, the first section of manned aircraft over the capital, the first night of the war. And that's a whole separate story. But our our target that night was elements of the one um, uh, perceived to be non-operational radar radar guided missile site in the country, an SA three that wasn't even operational working. But the to- the tomahawks were going to target it, and then in case you know things had moved around and they just made smoking holes where nothing was there, we were going to clean up whatever was left from that strike. And and literally the first night of the war, we we're going to take out the one SA-3, you know, in country. And we knew after that, everything was AAA and MANPATS. So not a big threat to us as aircraft. I mean, not compared to Kosovo, not compared to the Supermez and the potential of Iraq and everything after that. Um, it, it was interesting because we weren't really in a threat in terms of aircraft, unless we went low and you could get into, you know, and you go low enough, you're going to get into bad stuff. And the target set was interesting as well, because, you know, the great, you know, industrial cities and urban complexes of Afghanistan. Um, you know, we were targeting the Garmabak Gar terrorist training camp, you know, the thing where the guys were doing the monkey bars and uh, we were targeting uh, caves, literally targeting cave entrances. We were targeting POL. And ultimately, we got around to just straight up targeting people uh, when we had the Northern Alliance uh, special operations forces that were preceded by the CIA. We were there to just kind of eliminate um, the planning capability, the organizations, the Taliban, and just strike that initial blow. This was way before we got into any crazy nation building concepts. This was just destroy and disrupt any network or planning capability in the country. It, what month are we on right now? What, what's the date when you flew that mission? So we're in October. Um, I did look it up because I've got the the Bible here, also known as the flight logbook. Um, And it would have been October 7th, the night of October 7th, uh, 2001 was the the first strike. 
And you were on that first strike. I, I was on that first strike. And uh, to, to tell a very quick story. Um, yep, we take had, your time. We, tell the story. Right. Yeah, had, I mean, I, he's trying to hear it. So we had AWACS, we had tankers, but everybody was kind of in Pakistan. Right. We weren't going to let the, the AWACS, the tankers, any of those type of assets go into Afghanistan, not, not initially in the war. And we had kind of a, an east limit in Pakistan that they were allowing us to fly. So all the strike packages were going to go on up into various areas and hit various things. A lot of those targets, the first couple of days were the Afghanistan Air Force, right? I mean, we're talking something right out of the pages of Vietnam. I mean, we're talking stuff I had to look up, right? I'm like, oh my gosh, right? You know, we're talking all, you know, fish fish beds, you know, MiG-21s, you know, fitters, you know, like really old type of stuff they had out there. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm an ace, by the way, I've got, I've got over five aircraft kills all with GBU 12s on the ground, you know, uh, sitting at the hold short or in revetments, right. You know, uh, it's, it's not exactly, uh, uh, courageous, but, uh, yeah, we blew up anything that could fly the first couple of days. That had to be pretty damn cool. Did you guys have, I mean, where, what was the level of nerves going into combat and stuff? Were you guys pretty confident, comfortable, or? Yeah, I would, I would say the, the majority of airmen was confident. There were some guys, uh, plenty of guys had done, you know, Operation Southern Watch for your no-fly ops. But, you know, there was very few strikes and and, and really no surface-to-air threat and stuff going on every once in a while, you know. Um, there were some guys like me that had gone over and had done Kosovo or done, done some earlier things. Uh, you know, Kosovo, I remember seeing uh, – SA6s, you know, tip over at you, you know, it's like, oh, okay, this is real shooting war um, here. Um, and I was flying an F-14A at that point, you know, and I'll tell you what, as a guy who flew the D, I was feeling a little nervous in the A, right? You know, yeah. I had all types of stuff in the D that could handle that. Um, the A, yeah, you're, you're doing it old school, right? Gen X and, and some of that other stuff, some expendables and run away and, you know, do do that stuff in the A where the D you're just like making sure the jammers work and you're like, okay, good. I forgot um, about Gen X. You threw that. I'm like, oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. Hey, all you turn do is into it, deploy, you, turn away, you, right? Switch the stuff that's shooting at you and and throw it out there and then kind of run away bravely. That's right. Um, that's right. So yeah, that was the F14A experience. But uh, but back to the back to the preparation. I, I think guys were ready to go. Certainly after 9/11, watching people jump off of towers, watching those towers come down, nobody lacked the will to throw the counterpunch. Put it that way, right? Um, guys were up. Guys were ready to go. Guys were ready to get a little get a little something for for the folks back at home. So, in terms of willingness uh, to go to war. Did Absolutely. you guys mark up the bombs? Did you mark up the bombs with chalk and stuff from not, the beginning? Not, not, not the air crew so much. Man, the Ordies, Ordies were having a field day with it. We had a, we had a guy, uh, Dice Gormley. Guy used to be an F fourteen guy. Uh, then became a New York City firefighter. Right, so so track this arc was in uh, FDNY during the attacks of nine eleven. Was still in the reserves. Gets called up and is out on the Vincent as part of the uh, planning staff to augment CAG staff and planning and stuff. And they're like, why would we use this guy for planning? He's going to go around and tell the story of being in New York during 9-11, right? And and, and Dice came out and uh, brought a little piece of the World Trade Center, you know, and we, we had that as a squadron and stuff. And 
I'll, I'll tell you what, just one out there and giving the Newt Rockney pep talk and getting guys ready to go what do what they needed to do. And it, it was awesome. So will-wise, not a problem. Guys were ready to go. Tactics-wise, um, because the Tomcat had taken on the fat game mission, because we were we were well trained on close air support, because uh, NSOC, you know, called at the time when we did stuff like SCAR and time sensitive targeting and ran through those problems in training. Man, we were we were ready to go do this. We we kind of knew the mission, we knew the target set, and uh, certainly as the Tomcat air crews, we we had all the capability not only to do this stuff ourselves. But frankly, to lead our Hornet brethren and facilitate um, everything that they needed to do as well uh, out there on the battlefield. Did a ton, a ton of buddy lazing for guys because the Nighthawk at that time, no fault of our our Hornet brethren, was just a crappy, crappy pod. But we learned to put out laser spots. I was going to say, when you say lead our Hornet brethren, but you just explained it. So Yeah, yeah. So we, we would literally go out and find stuff for them, either put laser spot tractors on them and they would just drop on the spot and we'd guide it in. Uh, or we learned later, arm them up with Laser Maverick. My gosh, that thing was awesome. And we just put a spot out there. They'd get a spot. We'd clear them and we guided guide it in and, and we would take down all types of things. Uh, best thing you could have on your wing was a Hornet with three LMAV, you know, two sections of Hornet with, with, with six of those things between them. So it's fair to say that you probably guided more weapons to impact than actually employed from your airplane. Oh, but in Afghanistan and even to, to some degree in Iraq, but definitely in Afghanistan, um, I got the trifecta. I dropped GBU 10, the 2000 pound laser guided bomb over there. I dropped a ton of GBU 12s, 500 pound laser guided bomb. Dropped some GBU-16s, some 1,000 pounds. Dropped Mark 82s with target detection devices on them. Um, used the gun over there in two different situations. So 20 millimeter uh, strafe. Who, who thought you'd be doing that in the year 2001? Never. Um, and and deliver, I actually delivered Rock Eye over there. Uh, uh, of all things, I thought I would never drop in combat. And then uh, also just guided in a ton of laser-guided bombs and a lot of laser Maverick uh, off of Hornets. Yep. All right. So how ma- give us a little rough order magnitude. How many? How many? How many pieces of ordnance did you drop, and how many did you guide? Do you think rough so order? This, I mean, you don't have to be accurate, but this is the Afghanistan uh, Christmas tree <laughs> thing. Ah, look at that. I never did that. That's a great idea. These are Mark one. This is all that stays on the jet. This goes into your Mark 122 safe and arming device on top of your bombs. Uh, so this is all that's left when you drop over there. So you might recognize these guys. These are the pickup strings for the rock guys I dropped over there. Uh, for you uh, Top Gun 2 Maverick fans, that's a GBU-24 FZU-32 Bravo Bravo fuse initiator for that bunker buster. Uh, you know, and then a variety of other stuff. So when I came back, I dropped so much ordnance over there. I was taking these off, uh, taking a hot glue gun and putting a little jingle bell and a bow on the bottom and sending these out as Christmas tree ornaments for peace through firepower. Um, and, and this is this is just the stuff that came off my jet that didn't get handed out as a Christmas tree ornament. So uh, a lot of, lot of ordnance. Crunch, crunch. I, I think we're done here. I mean... <laughs> That is the high point of this of this episode. 
are are you still making Christmas tree ornaments for the listeners? <laughs> Do you have a business here, an Etsy, perhaps, an Etsy of uh, of bomb bomb ordinance, bomb Christmas tree ordinance by tongue? You know, I, I should have started, but you know, every once in a while, I'll, I'll run into somebody who's who's just a neat guy or just has a love of the Navy or, or somebody who's been really influential, and I'll say, hey, look, you know you know, or, or just, uh, you know, lost somebody in nine 11 or something. I'm like, Hey, look, you want a you want a piece of history and I'll, I'll do a little write up with it. And I'll, I'll just send it to him and go, Hey, look, this is, this is from the battlefield in Afghanistan. This, and I explain what it is and just do a little write up and I'll, I'll still send some of those out every once in a while. Yeah. So can I call that an Afghanistan ordinance Christmas tree? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's uh, yeah, it's, it's there. Crunch, I'm going to put that in the episode description, so All people right. that are wa- I just wrote that down, so people that are watching, if you read that now, Merry Christmas. Yeah, there <laughs> it, it is. All I included that first year was uh, it, it had this nice uh, drawing, this you know, uh, pencil sketch of a of a tomcat, and it, and it just you know, Merry Christmas, peace, peace on earth, peace through firepower. Um, awesome. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Now, so Tung, now I'm sure our listeners have figured this out by now, but you're a pretty tactical dude, right? Um, you have probably developed, I think you hinted already, you guys developed some TTPs, some procedures sure. out there. Um, the one you hinted at was basically buddy lazing for, well, first off, buddy lazing for the Nighthawk pod, buddy lazing for Hellfire. I think there was some other stuff you did as, to, did as well. Talk yeah, us through we- that. Yeah, we did a lot of stuff, and I, I didn't invent any of this stuff. I mean, we just borrow best practices from other other folks and, and try to do it in a novel way. Uh, did some good work with the Predator out there, and it was one of those things that uh, you almost had to have an F-14D to do it because I was literally talking to the Predator operator on J-Voice, on Link 16 Voice, which the Hornets didn't have, and I was talking to the Hornets on an encrypted radio, which he couldn't talk to. So I'm not only playing radio relay, I'm working with the Predator. Um, one day they... Where was the Predator operator? Uh, shoot, he could have been outside of Vegas and Creech as far as I know. I, I, don't know I just want to make sure, you know. I don't know where he was. So I'm talking, yeah. to, the, I'm talking to the AWACS. I'm talking to the Predator operator. And um, I've got uh, launched one day where we had a, 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 funny enough, my spare went down as a Tomcat. My wingman went down. So we launched launched with a Hornet spare. So I got a Hornet wingman, two Hornet strikers all loaded up with LMAV. And and we're going to go out. Little do I know we get uh, assigned to work with with a Predator. And he's tracking guys basically to this building. You know, this, this all, this all, we figure it out after the fact, but he's standby in this and we're watching the location and we're like, guys are rolling up and he's like, stand by. And he's going to go take these guys out. Right. Except his, his method of take them out is throw a, throw a hellfire into the building. And we're like, good God, man. But well, you know, you don't bring a knife to a gunfight. We're sitting up here with laser guided Maverick, which for the folks listening at home has a 300 pound shape charge warhead on it. Now that'll clear a room. Right. What does the hellfire have? Like oh, a little, 15. Oh, like, Little, I I can't tell you, but but not not a lot, right? Um, and uh, so he he unbeknownst to us shoots a hellfire into it, and it becomes a room clearing event. Everybody's running out of this thing, and they're getting into vehicles and stuff. So we we go and hit the building, bomb the building, but then we got vehicles to take care of. So the nice thing is we see him, and we just buddy lays for for we put guys in a counter rotating cap so there's always a guy pointing at the target area and we just put spot down good spot laser mav inbound and we can have multiple vehicles and just give it about 10 seconds tell the next guy shoot on the same spot 
And when the first one hits, you just walk over to the next vehicle, hit that one, walk over to the next vehicle. We just had a Congo line of Laser Maverick coming in on those things. So, I mean, just just little 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 things like that. I think the one thing that I think we did actually develop for for a new TTP that folks hadn't done before is the lantern targeting system. We got an upgrade uh, in software, and it allowed us to kind of generate these very tight four decimal point or four digit right of the decimal point coordinates. And the idea is we could put those into JDAM or something else. Um, well, we wound up on a convoy one day, a nice steep ravine, laser guided bomb on the first vehicle, laser guided bomb on the last vehicle. The doors are open. People are fleeing into the hills and there's a convoy standing there. So I call up and I'm like, hey, send us guys. We're going to just obliterate these vehicles. Well, they send me a B-52 and I'm like, oh, like, oh this is going to be awesome. But what does the guy have? Wickmid, a CBU-103. It's it's think of, it's a GPS-guided uh, cluster munitions, right? Uh, Wind-corrected munitions dispenser is what it stands for. And so we're like, all right, we'll give it a go. Generate coordinates on a nice little group of vehicles, read them off to the guy. We're looking up at him. I mean, he's dropping from the upper 40s. This thing, I mean, you could have had a coffee. I mean, I could have this whole beer. Uh, minute and six-second time of fall, you see the dot, 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 and then all the secondaries. So we would uh, we would generate coordinates and lantern and give it to guys that had GPS-guided munitions and use it for them to drop on. Um, so, yeah, we, we did that over there uh, as well. Wow, that's, per- that's, that's pretty amazing. So it's, did you do a lot of – so? I mean, it's a long way in there. Did you spend a lot of time working with a lot of Air Force assets, or was it mostly from the carrier? It was Afghan. Iraq was very different. We had Air Force all over the place in Iraq and different things like that. Uh, it was largely a Navy show initially. Yeah. Um, the Air Force started getting a footprint, uh, worked with some AC-130s over there, which was an incredible asset. I, I think the single most impressive thing that I've ever seen visually from the cockpit was a uh, night assault, helo-borne assault on a compound, Ace, two AC-130s counter-rotating cap off uh, overhead. We were uh, cast stacked from the air wing set offset to the side. And the only people that could kind of cross those lines were the forward air controllers and actually got to see an old school ZSU 23 tech four, take a couple fire hose shots, at some of the, uh, some of the helos that were involved in the assault before we could even get around and get our nose on and designate that guy. The two AC-130s opened up on that thing. And we're on night vision goggles. So imagine you see this this tornado of death coming down, followed by just massive secondaries. I mean, in, even sitting there during wartime, I, I, I took stock of that. And I, I said to my potty, dude, that was cool, <laughs> you know, because it, it was that, that neat looking. Um, in warfare. So, so yeah, some of the other non-traditional assets got, you know, the AC-130s and other guys specifically got involved in the B-52s were over there as well. Some B-2s came in. So really heavy bombers, of course, tanking and AC-130s, but you didn't see like the F-16 sorties over there, or the F-15s or, or their strike fighters over there a lot at all. Yeah. It was mostly a Navy show. Now that said, I mean, you just hinted at it, tanking. It's a long way from the ship into Afghanistan. Yeah, so right? let me let me actually go back and tell the story of the first strike, right? So I started to tell it, and then I got down a rabbit hole. So we were assigned the farthest northeast tanker track. You got your placemat out, you're looking at it. And our strike package was two Tomcats sweeping out in front of two Air Force B-1s that had a whole bunch of targets. So we were 
were, we, we were going to be self-escort, right? If anybody was stupid enough to come up and fly, we were actually carrying the Phoenix. I was going to get the Phoenix killed. Nah, um, it never happened, right? So one, one Phoenix, one, one uh, Sparrow, why? Or no, we didn't have a Sparrow. It was just a Phoenix, two Sidewinders and the Lantern, right? Going out there, two GBU-10s. So the 2,000-pound the uh, laser guided bombs, because why not? That's not bad for a first – this is the first – First strike, first night of the war. We're following five Tomahawks in. That's a good loadout. Two Hornets, two B1s, supposed to be a Prowler back there, and then two Hornets. And the Hornet has a slam ER standoff land attack missile extended range. One guy's the shooter. One guy's the guider. And that's that's our strike package. Uh, so we go and we're going to tank off a KC-135. Well, we join on the KC-135 and he is streaming gas from the knuckle. I mean, it's just, it's just pouring out. And we're like, hey, do you, you're like, yeah, we know we got a leak. So we go to get our gas. I think we're supposed to get 8,000 pounds or something. We get about 3,500 pounds in. And the guy's like, offload complete. We're like, no, that all went down the side, you know, streaming from the knuckle. So we uh, actually cancel the two Hornets, cancel the Prowler and our strike package. And we just say, hey, keep giving us the rest of the, 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 the package's gas. Because everybody with 40% gas means no strike package, right? So um, we wind up just being two Tomcats with the two B1s. And that's going to be our strike package going up to Kabul following the, uh, the Tomahawks in. Well, remember that the AWACS, everybody else, they're going to stay south. Well, we eventually outfly radio comms and we actually outfly Link 16 to the point where the only guys we can see are the are the folks in our immediate package because we, we, we don't we can't see the bigger picture or anything anymore. And we lose comms and we're kind of self-contained. Um, so we watch on night vision goggles. We watch the, the tomahawks go off, you know, bam, 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 bam. And then the entire city erupts in AAA. You're like, oh, freaking way to bat the hornet's nest before we get to the tree, right? Not helpful. And uh, it's all the low-level stuff. And we're, we're up pretty high. And there's mountains all over, you know, surrounding Kabul. And it was like fireworks just from last night, from the 4th of July. Every once in a while out of the sea of green tracers, you'd see, the, you know, that sizzle, sizzle, sizzle. Boom, right? Real low rate of fire. But the, the high uh, caliber stuff that would get up kind of at altitude and go off up there with you. But so we come in, we drop our two GBU 10s. Uh, we had four of them between the two of us. We come back around, we complete our sweep for the B1s and we're flying back and we get, and we had told the tanker, we're like, Hey, look, are you going to be here on the back end? The guy's like, no, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to be off station. Don't worry. Somebody will be here. When we eventually get back in comms, we're like, Hey, we had a guy, he left where's our new tanker? And the guy's like, oh, you're on a different track. You're down on whatever. And I'm breaking out the placemat. I'm like, holy shit, this thing's like way down South Central. Uh, it's nowhere up in the corner. I'm like, no, we need somebody closer. They're like unable. I'm like, we're not going to make it. And we immediately go on a bingo profile. Um, so we're up at whatever, high 30s, maybe low 40s. In, in, you know, in country, first night of the war, hot war. And we are just hanging on the blades on a bingo profile trying to figure out uh, if we're going to make it to the tanker track. And I'm looking at it and I'm like, I know bingo takes you to sea level, but I go, we're not going to make it. We're not going to make it out of country to go. Oh, that's, a, that's a terrible feeling too, because oh, yeah. it's the worst and, feeling and for the audience. I just want to say one thing, Tom, no, not only Tomcats, Navy aircraft run out of gas sometimes. So it's not like you're sitting there going, Oh, this isn't going to happen. 
No, you're yeah. sitting there going, I don't want to be the next guy to do this. So yeah. shit, well, <laughs> that's a terrible feeling. We're, we're going to be the a first one, night of the war. <laughs> we're going to be a one night wonder. So back to the tanker question, right? So again, I'm flying an F-14D. So I can see my tanker on the link. You know, we're back in the link. I can select him. I can see what channel he's on. I dial the guy up and I start talking to him. I go, look, you got two Tomcats originally fragged for this track. We're now fragged for you. We're on a bingo profile coming out of Kabul and we're not going to make it. What can you do? And he was not allowed to go into country, right? Those were the rules that night. He goes, okay, how far do you need me to go? I'm like, I don't know, at least 50 miles north in the country, maybe 100. And the guy goes, all right. And he started dragging his entire package with him over the over the border into nice. where he wasn't supposed to call go. And he just said, call my turn. And we did. And he turned his entire package out in front of us. And we did an idle descent. He cleared everybody off. Uh, off right into the boom. Uh, I was, uh, we were on the tanker, uh, KC 10. We were on the tanker, big basket, uh, with, uh, both soft, low lights soft. On. <laughs> yeah, both low fuel lights on and 500 pounds in tow lights, which it, it, that are oh. out there, that's your car's needle on the left side of E with gap between the needle and the E. That, that's gauge error. That <laughs> is. Yeah, any, I, at any point, I expected an engine to flame out. Yeah. Um, and, and tanking yeah. single engine would have been sporty. So um, I'm flying with Sean Sacamondo, future, future Blue Angel. Sean and I get in the basket first because we're a little lower on gas. We get about 1,000 pounds, maybe 1,500, just enough to – you know, watch things come in. We get out. You're our, fat. Our, yeah, <laughs> fat. Yeah, guess. Uh, Lee gets in, gets about 2K. We cycle back in, you know, get get real comfortable. Lead cycles back in. And and frankly, an Air Force tanker guy, the first night of the war, and, and that's as close as I came to, to you know, to, to anything else. I mean, I had plenty of handheld shot at me. We had ball IR. We had other stuff. But that's, that's the closest that I've come the jumping out of an aircraft in my Navy career was the first night of the war in Afghanistan. And, and I'll put it to that tanker guy, that air force guy literally saved our ass that first night of the war. That's good That's to awesome. hear. Yeah. So, okay. So I'm going to go uh, off script here. So let's, let's pretend, pretend that it didn't, that he didn't come North or something happened or you flamed out, boom. And you hit the silk, you, you flame out, you punch out, bang, you're now down in country. Was there a CSAR plan? Ready was there a package ready to go to get you? These are combat search and rescue. Yeah, yeah there, there, there was. There absolutely was. Um, we thought based on our altitude, we might be able to glide it in, maybe get across the border. Um, there was a designated field in Pakistan you could go to. It was kind of a keep the engines running, uh, take land at the same end. People are going to shoot at your aircraft as your, you, you know, one of those deals. Um, but we didn't think we were going to be, we didn't think we had enough gas even on a glide to make it. it we might've, I don't know. Um, but there was a CSAR plan and, and as a forward air controller, we were always ready to flex into that combat search and rescue role. I don't know if you guys remember, there were two helos that were trying to get over some terrain there. Um, one of them hit, went down. They managed to land the other one, ditch equipment, put guys on there and kind of self-rescue. Um, there was a moment that I was getting activated to go do that CSAR, pulling out the spider chart and everything. Um, but they kind of self-rescued. Uh, I did actually blow up that MH-53, um, mm. put a laser-guided bomb into it intentionally <laughs> after the fact 
to get rid of all the equipment and stuff. But yeah, you got you got a whole podcast series worth of stories just yourself. I mean, you blew up an MH fifty three. That is cool. Yeah, we 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 had that. And, um, yeah, there there was a lot of stuff over there that that again, most of it was mundane. Um, you know, uh, but but I'll tell you what, we did a lot of close air support. Hey, so, how much was your uh, flight time on that first mission? Uh, I just looked it up. It was. Uh, it wasn't that much. I think it was a five something. Um, but that was like kind of a dedicated thing. We went to, we eventually rolled into triple cycle. If you were going south, think Kandahar area, you'd go triple cycle. The carrier was doing one plus thirties. So that's a four and a half hour mission plus a little bit of change on the side. If you were going north, Mazari Sharif, uh, Bagram, you know, the north area, north of Kabul, you'd, you'd quad cycle. So you'd be flying six hour missions. So uh, six hours plus some change. So either four and a half hours or six hours with all the associated tanking was typical for Afghanistan. Hey, speaking of tankers. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. All right. Uh, bio's out. Tongue, do you need to go get a refill? No, I'm going to do a little in-flight refueling right here. I, I actually did my mission planning, so I'm, I'm set. I am um, not surprised once yeah. one bit. Awesome. Well, that's awesome. So now, um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about. So I while you were over there doing uh, back in 2001, when this whole thing kicked off, I was at Top Gun at the time. Yeah. Uh, and I was the I was the surf air threats and tactics guy. Mm. And I remember you guys were over there, and one of the big things – we all were talking about was man pads because for everybody who, you know, a man pad, man portable air defense system, right? So that's on the U S side, we have stingers. Yeah. It's a shoulder launched rock uh, missile, right? And they're typically uh, infrared guided. And so they're going to be, you're going to be flying overhead and they're super easy to use. I've stood at the runway with one in on my shoulder and just started grabbing guys there in the brake flying over and be like, yep, I gotcha. 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 I wasn't really shooting of course, but I was, it was so easy to track people coming in. So it's very easy visually to acquire, um, a heat signature to be able to employ one of those man pads. Now, some of the older ones, they, they only can go up to a certain altitude. They're relatively low altitude. And oh, by the way, you generally have to see the person. Um, so we're talking, you know, low, below 10,000 feet. Maybe yeah. you get into the above 10,000, you know, 15, we'll say for the sake of argument. I don't know what Jane says, whatever they say. That's what it is. Well, if you're on a mountaintop with this thing, it's going to go higher. And some of the mountains in Afghanistan, are pretty stinking high. I mean, they alone are above 10,000 feet you're flying over, right? So, yep. I mean, you could you could be at five, 15,000 feet and right in the heart of a man pad if somebody's humped this thing up to the top of a mountain. That had to give you some concern from time to time. Even if you're flying along 25,000 feet going, you know, I'm just not sure I'm really all that safe up here. Yeah, it, it did. And one of the nice things that we put into the lantern system is we had a couple of options, right? We can do this, we can do this, we can do this. And one of the things we elected to put in uh, serendipitously for mountain yeah. warfare was the 40K laser. Mm -hmm. uh, because previously, the laser fire was limited to 25,000 feet MSL. That's so right. Yes, I forgot about that. And if you were kind of skirting that altitude, you didn't watch and you kind of did a climbing turn, you'd shut the damn laser off. You'd lose the bomb and go God knows wherever. Um, mm -hmm. and we had put 40K laser on just prior to Afghanistan. And thank goodness we did. 
Um, let me just say that that first night where I was flying above all that AAA and stuff coming up and everything, um, I was at 30 plus delivering that weapon, yeah. um, MSO. And I can only do that because of the, the laser mod that we put on the lantern. And so where we could stay high and deliver, um, we would, right? Because you were just safe. It got to the point where we had so many man pads shot at us. I remember one day having this kind of moment of realization I was eating a breakfast burrito in the back, you know, because not only was I a Rio, I was in flight beverage service and, uh, you know, food service for the pilot and everything, right? And, and so I had wrapped up a bunch of uh, breakfast burritos and tinfoil. We had a class on that when I was in Pensacola. Did you guys have that? Or? <laughs> we, were, we, were having our, we were having our in-flight meal, uh, you know, in theater. And uh, I remember eating a breakfast burrito, looking down and seeing a handheld come up. And they kind of did the bottle rocket thing when they weren't guided, right? They kind of... And I just remember looking at it going, hmm. like, didn't even say anything to the pilot because I knew it was falling off. I knew it wasn't going to get up there. And then I had this moment of zen of, oh, my gosh, I'm, like, my, my heart's not even elevated. I, I have hit this complacency thing, right, which is scary. You don't want to go there. And I, and I, I just go, oh, my gosh, I'm, I have actually hit complacency on man pads. Um, because, again, the, the Smoky Sams, which we use in training, right, we shoot them at aircraft in training. There, there's no guidance. You know, they're, yeah. it's like the Nerf rocket of, of surface air missiles. They're, they're little bottle rockets. Smoky they, they, bottle rockets. They are actually incredibly realistic in terms of their ability to simulate what an unguided man pad looks like. Now, I'll tell you, I also know what guided man pads look like. And they are pulling lead on you. And they are not doing the random orbit corkscrewy thing. They are they are getting out in front of you with a purpose or it looks like that because they're, they're trying to consummate an intercept. And uh, the one great thing that we had over there, uh, and, and I'll tell you what, it, it was a step back for a long time, uh, and maybe still is, uh, in the Super Hornet and other aircraft. Um, you know, uh, we had our two buckets of 30 expendables, which was the standard Tomcat load. But then we put on these Sidewinder rails, uh, specialized rails called BOL, a Swedish system, uh, BOL IR, BOL infrared. And you could load 60 packets up on a conveyor belt into those Sidewinder rails. And we carry three of them, right? So when you do the quick math on that, 60 expendables in the bucket, 160 rails times three, I'm carrying 540 layers over Afghanistan. And they, they told us to stop checking the BOL IR because when you check it, now you throw eight packets or something out of a rail, they got to reload that thing. And it's a pain in the ass for the orties. And it came out in front of our horizontal steps. And it looked like somebody had dumped a bucket of Kingsford briquettes out of the pit because it would just blacken up and just, just destroy the paint job and everything on the steps. So they said, stop testing it. Well, one day we landed and we trap and we spin out for dearming. And the gunner is immediately up my ass. He's over there, blah, 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 blah. Because he saw that we put out a ton of bull IR because both our horizontal tails are, you know, just like somebody painted a black streak down them. And then I do this. I go. And he he realized that we had fired the gun. And he's looking up there. He's like, oh, my gosh. Because you can see all the smoke junk and build up behind the gun. And he's like, you guys fired the gun. And you guys put out bowl IR. There's a story here, right? Yeah, right. Uh, and it, we had to go over um, most uh, mission that I remember above everything, three different wars. And there's one mission that sticks out in my head that I'll never forget. And I'll try not to get emotional over this. We got called one day for close air support. 
Um, and, uh, you know, things, nothing's been going on. We've been on the, the air tasking order for close air support for a couple of days with nothing happening. And, uh, I go to do my formal mission number, you know, MN Papa check-in, you know, by the numbers, guys, like, shut up. Do you have the friendly position? And I'm talking to him on encrypted radio. So I'm like, yeah, I got get there right now. And I hear in the background, I mean, I can hear the firefight going down in the background. So I'm like, oh shit. So we throw it in, we haul butt over there and there's a hill. And the FLIR, the friendly position, is showing right on top of the hill. I can see some stuff on the top of the hill. And there are guys coming up the southern face, right? The dots are coming up. And this guy's in a firefight. And he's like, you know, all right, yep, we got your position. Understand you're on top of the hill. He's like, yep, the southern face. Like, yep, we see him. They're all freaking all over us. And he says, put one at the bottom of the hill. So we've got two GBU-16s, two 1,000-pound laser-guided bombs. So wingman goes up to high cover. We come in. We drop a laser-guided bomb right at the base of the hill. Bam! How is that? Freaking awesome. Put one halfway up the hill. So we come in, put our next bomb halfway up the hill. Bam! How is that? Awesome. So we're out. I mean, I only got two 1,000-pound laser-guided bombs. So wingman comes in. Hey, did you see Leeds hits? Yep. Tally on Leeds hits. Put one three quarters of the way up the hill. You can see where this is going. Yeah. What's one three quarters up the way of the hill? And then he comes up and goes, put it on top of the bleeping hill. And I come up immediately and say, hey, understand danger close, which for folks listening, that's that's calm brevity for you. The friendlies are going to be inside the effects of my weapon. Right. And he goes, yeah, just put it on the bleeping top of the hill. Put it on there now. And so the wing rolls in and puts one right on top of the hill. Right. And we come up. Hey, man, how was that? Hey, how was that? I mean, 10, 15 minutes go by. I mean, I had the worst feeling I have ever had in aircraft. I mean, my stomach's nodded. I'm like, I mean, I was just I was like, freaking hell. We just had a blue on blue. And and the guy knew we were putting I mean, he was asking for it and it's right on his position. And I'm like, we just freaking killed the friendlies. Well, about 15 minutes go by. This guy comes back up on the radio. He's like, hey, you guys still up there? We're like, yeah. And he goes, and I, and I wish I would have kept this recording to this day. He goes, I'm okay. My guys are okay. My horse is okay. You must have got 50 of those bleepers. <laughs> when do you hear my horse is okay? Right? <laughs> what the bleep, right? So he just said, put it on top of the hill. They got on horseback and they boogied. I mean, they just rode like the wind. And, and as everybody else was coming in their position, we put, you know, put a thousand pounder right on top of that hill. Amazing. That's amazing. So it's it's 20 minutes or so after that, where they, somebody else calls up and says, Hey, we need immediate support over here. We're tailing Charlie. Everybody else is on the tanker on the next wave. We, he goes, what do you got? We "We got nothing. We got 20 millimeter. And we had to go over there about two valleys over and strafe guys off of got troops in contact. And I'm sitting there going, you know, it's 2001. We're going to go strafe guys with 20 millimeter and an F-14 Tomcat, something you barely practice, still in the training and readiness matrix. And the first one, because the Tomcat is so damn sexy, I don't know if they don't know you're coming because the first one was smooth. No muzzle flashes, no nothing. They weren't expecting us to show up. Or maybe they were just sitting there in awe of the sexiest looking fighter ever made. It was one of the two. But you get a free pass on the first run. But when you do exactly what Top Gun recommends you don't do, which is go into a racetrack pattern because it was a big wadi where guys were coming across, linear thing, and were 
the, the pilots walking the pedals and pulling back on the stick to kind of throw a zigzag out there. We wind up doing four strafing runs, you know, empty the drum. And on, on the, the same track over the ground, same track over the ground, same way, same day. And I remember looking out and just up there going eight flares, eight flares, eight flares. I got a ton of them. Don't care. Eight flares, eight flares, eight flares. And watching, first of all, muzzle flashes all over the place and watching handhelds rip off at us. And no sooner would they come out, they would turn and go behind us where we were putting out the flares. So I saw at least four handhelds launched at us. There were probably more. There were probably some I didn't see during those strafing runs. But I'll tell you what, Bol IR was a godsend. That stuff was, it, it, as long as you put it out, those handhelds just love that stuff when we go that's, right back into the flares. That's amazing. You know, and okay, so the audience, I'm sure everybody knows that what you're doing is you're using the ACM handle. And the, yeah, yeah. But, but one thing you talk about, you only had uh, two bombs. Reminds me of something I was talking to a guy about, and that was one of the shortcomings of the Tomcat as a yep. strike platform. It just didn't have enough weapon stations. I mean, it had eight, you could have eight air-to-air missile stations, and and that was good back in the day. But if you get into, you know, a combat situation and you want bombs, you want something like an A6 or even an A7. Well, I'll tell you what, if we could have put some, some you know, and there were all players you know, super Tomcat 20,000, you know, all that stuff. Yeah, but you could put TERS with three 500-pound bombs and, you know, yeah, so yeah, you yeah. Could carry, yeah. Yeah, so what what would I have liked? I would have loved to have been able to carry LMAV. Uh, it didn't exist yet, mm-hmm. but they they, uh, they came out with a system. Laser Maverick. Laser Maverick, right? They came out with a system for helos called APKWS, Advanced Precision Kill Weapon System. It was 2.75-inch folding fin rockets, your old Vietnam rocket right, pod. Right, but right, right. A little triangle of fins that came out on it, and it just was a laser seeker. So imagine what you could do as a forward air controller with a multiple shot rocket pod that was laser guided sitting out there. I would have loved that. I would have loved to have that thing. I would have loved to have them put Hellfire. You know, the Brits had a, a, a version called Brimstone that they hung on the Harrier. I would have loved to have multiple shot Hellfire out there. There's a ton of stuff. What, what we really lacked was a moving target, something really to take down those moving targets. Those laser guided bombs with their bang, bang guns, gravity fed trying to chase down a mover was hard with us. If you had a Hornet on your wing who had laser Maverick or something, that thing was dead um, because you just kick him in the rear, you put the spot on him, he'd shoot and you'd guide it in. Um, but we were lacking some ordnance um, that we could have used uh, some other things. But in terms of throwing the wings out and staying on station forever, getting the call, throwing the wings back, hauling butt over there, getting there in an instant, putting ordnance on target, um, for the hand we were dealt, we played it pretty good. And having two guys. Oh, yeah. Your pilot can be, you know, the pilot sitting there getting you into position and fighting the jet, and you're talking to the uh, the uh, Reaper guy or whatever, you know. Yeah. Or the tanker. Well, let, let, me, let me break it down to you. So I think most of the audience, without giving away any spoilers, has seen the first Top Gun and the second Top Gun. And people will constantly ask folks. Hey, you know, Tom, what was real in that movie? Well, Top Gun won maybe two things. The flat spin was actually a real thing. You could do it in the Tomcat, right? Big, wide, separated engines, especially with TF-30s that like to compressor stall on you. You could get that thing going like a Frisbee. That and the bar scene. So that's about it from the first movie. Um, you know, the second movie, there was some some other stuff in there. 
Um, the most realistic scene from an F-14 perspective was working that circuit breaker panel because anybody that was a Rio knew exactly how those things were labeled and played circuit breaker warfare. You know, we were all good at that. Um, but those two movies are about one thing. Those two movies are about one word and it's trust. It's who do you trust, right? The first one, who do you want as your wingman, right? The second one, pretty much the same thing. Those movies were about trust. And uh, there was no trust in, I mean, we had trust as wingmen, we had trust in each other, but there was no trust that you would experience like being a FAC A crew between the pilot and the Rio. The, 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 the pilots that I flew with is FAC A crews. I mean, um, I, I let them drink a six pack and get in the car on a rainy night and drive down the, the, the road with no lights on. Um, that, that's how much I trusted those guys. I mean, there were sometimes we just had to go heads down and do our mission in the back seat, whether it was on the radios and working all the fact stuff. And the pilot was literally up front, just dodging stuff, avoiding the terrain and not getting us killed while we're working that mission. And we'd have a little time to communicate and get marks down and things where we needed to. Um, that was the ultimate trust. And I don't care what the platform is, you know, they're doing that in the super Hornet now. I mean, that's, that's trusting a hundred, somebody a hundred percent. And, uh, it was a, it was a great thing to be a part of it at one point in my life. That was awesome. So, so, you know, we just talked to, this is obviously a big deal. This is about the F-14, uh, in OEF. I mean, you could probably go for hours with different stories from back then. I bet if you just go through, pick a logbook page and be like, oh yeah, I remember that one. And wow, I bet our audience would love it. So maybe, maybe you should just have your own podcast story <laughs> time with tongue. That'd be awesome. Well, but, I'll, tell, uh, I'll, tell you one, I'll tell you one story and I've heard it retold in different forms on your podcast, but it really is the story. There, there's two stories of the Tomcat, right? There's the, the rebirth of the Tomcat from a cold war interceptor and chainsaw tactics and blue water ops and backfire bombers in the Atlantic and fighting the cold war, which it was designed for. And this, this whole reimagination as a strike fighter to get the most out of that airframe and what we could do with it at the end of its life and just really have it be impactful. That's story one. And it's a, and it's a true story, but the real story of the Tomcat, especially in those out years is what it took to get that damn thing flying and get it to the war. And it's the story of not the pilots in the Rios. It's the story of the maintainers in the squadron and the squadrons that get that, you know, first one down so you could start turning wrenches on it, last one to launch. I mean, think of it as that that muscle car that you got in your shop and you work on it all, on it all week to just to get it out on the strip, you know, with your mullet and your eight track player to, you know, cruise for chicks on the weekend with that big supercharger sticking out of the hood, um, you know, maybe do a little illegal street racing. I mean, that was the Tomcat. And, and but for our maintainers and but for the folks that got that thing, kept that damn thing flying and turned it at incredible I mean, those guys were the real heroes of the war. Um, I mean, yeah, the pilots in the Rios did some stuff, but we couldn't have done anything without our maintainers. Yeah, I, I tell you, I, I, I can't, uh, I can't say enough about that. I mean, we've all, we've all spent a lot of times in the squadrons, and and the vast majority of the squadron personnel are the maintainers, and they're the ones who are out there busting their tails on the midnight shift, working sometimes twelve on twelve off to get us ready to go back to sea, and and it is. It, it is rarely recognized how hard they work. And just, as, and just as proud to be in a Tomcat squadron as any pilot in Rio. 100%. That's right. Or when you're out there at Top Gun and you see a guy walking around who's, you know, the already, and he's, he's got a Top Gun patch on because he's just proud 
proud to be putting you know ordnance in your airplane. It's so cool. Top Gun patch with a Yoyas underneath it, but yeah, yeah like, very valid. <laughs> so we had an Ordi show tongue. We had an Ordi show, so everybody knows what a Yoyas means. So it, 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 I think it may have been one of the more popular ones. Yep. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, I tell you, I care. Um, but yeah, so you're right. So the the maintainers just they are out there. The f- folks on the flight deck, the folks maintaining the cat the catapults or the arresting gear, or down in the bowels of the ship working the magazines or the aviation fuel systems, or even the guy who's on TAD who's down there in the galley wishing that he was you know loading bombs on airplanes, but it's his turn to be down there flipping eggs and things like that. I mean, people are working their tails off, especially at sea. It's absolutely amazing. So salute to the maintainers. Um, Hey, so a couple of things before we, uh, I think this is a good time for us to, to kind of shift a little bit. We've had good story time. Let's talk about tongue for a little bit. First off, I think I know the answer to this question. Where did tongue come from? Your call sign. Yeah, it's, uh, it's actually T-U-N-G. Uh, it's short for Tunguska, although I can't be loquacious. Um, uh, so it actually started in VF-142. When I was a young guy, we were going through ARP, Advanced Attack Readiness Program. We were just learning how to bomb in the Tomcat. And we went over, ironically, to the weapons school where I would later be an instructor. And they gave us this, you know, kind of in-brief test. See what the guys know about air-to-ground, you know, the darn fighter guys. You know, what is a Mark 82 uh, bomb? You know, what's this? What's that? And the, the extra credit question on the back was, what is the Tunguska? Now, they're talking the Soviet or the NATO terminology for the 2S6, replacing mm-hmm. it for the ZSU-23 Tech 4. This had 30 millimeter on it and some man pads on the chassis and all the other stuff. Of course, I didn't know that at the time. Uh, but I did know what Tunguska, the area in Siberia, is. Quoted at the end of Ghostbusters, the largest interdimensional crossroads since the Tunguska event of 1908. And I did know about concentric circles of trees and possible alien intervention. Right, exactly. That's what I was thinking of. So I I wrote that down. Um, (laughs) There's a brand new guy in the squadron. Uh, And uh, they gave me the points for the question because the question was not specific enough. But they also scanned it in on acetate, you know, back at the time and threw it on the overhead projector and said, well, we got a very interesting answer from one of your new guys. <laughs> and, got yeah. and the SWAT slant instructor goes, uh, XO, I'm going to need to talk to you. After the part. <laughs> you got, a young, you got a young guy here who needs a little. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, I, I never knew that story. That's funny. No, that's that, a great one. <laughs> that is, that is that's good. That's good. So what are you doing now? What keeps you busy? Uh, t- two things. Uh, work in consulting. So taking the, the great stuff that we learned and we thought was obvious, plan brief, execute debrief, develop leaders, optimize teams, You know, continuously learn stuff that we took is granted in naval aviation, and bringing that out to some other folks in some diverse stuff, whether it's energy, oil and gas, right now doing a lot of engagements with law enforcement. Um, dealing with, you know, situational awareness, decision-making, things like that. I mean, shoot, we just mm-hmm. talked about lethal use of force, right? Been there, done that, uh, got some lessons learned from you, both good and bad, right? Um, and also working with healthcare. Healthcare's been through a hell of a hell of a crunch, and they're, they're facing a lot of headwinds. And they just don't have that band of brothers mindset that we had. A lot of lone wolves in healthcare, right? And they, they really weren't taught all that compart- healthy compartmentalization and some of the tools that we use to get through what we did 
and come through physically intact, mentally intact, and bringing some of those best practices. So uh, with a couple of guys with similar backgrounds, uh, you know, one of the guys, a prowler guy, but okay, we let him in. Uh, a couple Marines. We even have some Air Force affirmative hires. Uh, but, you know, a lot, of, a lot of naval aviators and a little company called Spartan Training Performance and kind of spreading the goodness to other industries and um, helping them understand some of the best practices that we had. And then the other thing I'm doing is uh, got a little upset at the state of education and lockdowns and uh, masking and things going on in our schools in our country. So uh, I ignored the fact that Navy is, in fact, an acronym. Never again volunteer yourself. And I ran for school board here in Colorado in Douglas County. And I am currently the president of the nation's 56th largest school board. Um, 64,000 kids, 8,600 employees, a budget of about three quarters of a billion dollars. And uh, trying to get education back on track and uh, keep academic growth and achievement and uh, the educational experience in the forefront for our kids. And uh, doing this thing bottom up the way we envisioned it. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, Congratulations. Tony, if anybody can do it, you can do it. Hey, you need to call uh, Chili Culpepper. He's running for VB Virginia Beach School Board right now. Awesome. I, I know Chili. Uh, actually, uh, talking about flying with uh, VF-55 over there, you know, That's VF-41. He was- I, I flew with Chili in combat in Kosovo. So I will, I will definitely uh, look him up in uh, – I got some lessons learned for him, man. It's a, yeah. <laughs> uh, people people ask me like, "Wow, you seem really calm and, and cool up there on the dais, you know, doing the the school board stuff." I go, "Well, because I've been shot at numerous times." I go, and, and, "And it's about the best prep I could have had for being on a school board." Trust me, it's 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 vicious out there, you know. So, oh, that's awesome. Good stuff. Cool. Crunch, once again, I feel like the underachiever in the room, you know, after talking to our guests and hearing what they're doing now and stuff, it's like, oh, okay. Tell me about it. I'm like, I'm like, I don't know. I think I'll go make myself a breakfast burrito now. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, Tonga, are there any other, anything else that we should have asked you, do you think? Anything we missed? No, I, I think uh, maybe my two biggest, biggest takeaways from the OEF thing is uh, right mission at the right time for the Tomcat. Who, whoever the visionaries, and I know you had uh, uh, Hey Joe Parsons and, and you had PK Verna talking about FACA and you had Hey Joe talking about Lantern and how we got that on there. Man, we had some smart guys that came before me that did the right thing with the aircraft. And in the, the, the out years and the twilight years of the Tomcat, um, talking about you know uh, making the best of your buck at a dollar store. We, we put the right things on the aircraft. We picked the right missions and we did the right training. And it really was, I think, the golden years of the Tomcat and really lived up to its potential. The other thing that I took away, and I talked about this when I, when I came back and talked to Top Gun, um, man, the air-to-air mission, although it seems complex, you know, all these different problems and formations and stuff, Man, we kind of got that air to air thing down and we can solve things ourselves in the cockpit. We, you know, with help from AWACS and E2s and other folks, and we got that mission down. Man, the surface to air thing uh, or the, the air to surface thing is, is complex. And boy, it's it, from the air. I don't care how low you go and how good the fleers are getting and stuff. Man, we need guys' help to tell us who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. It's just a really hard problem to solve. Um, and, and, uh, you just that's, an interesting, that's interesting. That's an interesting perspective. I don't think we've heard anything like that before. Yeah, it's it, it, it really, it, it, the reality is in combat, you know, 
ugh, if you're not 100% sure, you're not sure, right? If you're you're 90% sure, then you're 10% in doubt, right? If there's and, doubt, there's no doubt. That's right. And and I'll tell you, specifically the fact mission, you wound up in this 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 interesting predicament where, man, if you weren't quick and you weren't effective, you know, guys are dying. The clock is running. But if you were too quick and you didn't build situational awareness, uh, I mean, I, I just told you, I almost did it one day. I thought I killed uh, friendly forces. Turned out we didn't. But, man, you don't want to that, – that is that dance of death of, of don't want to be too fast, can't be too slow – and but you've got to be somewhere in that sweet spot of of, of get in there, do your mission, do it effectively. But but uh, and I taught this stuff. I was in the Department of Military and Strategic Studies up at the Air Force Academy talking about Clausewitz and fog of war. Right? I go, okay, that's an old Prussian dude. Man, he was right. Let me talk to you about what that looks like on the modern battlefield. Because I don't care how many links, how many sensors and, and helmets and, and all the stuff we have. The fog of war is a real thing. And it was real back in the, the days of Clausewitz and the Prussians and stuff. And it is absolutely real today, no matter how much stuff goes on. And, and maybe that's the last thing I'd like to impart for guys that are in the Navy now or guys that are listening um, it's complex. It's difficult. It's it's hard, and, and solving that rubric is is a hell of a challenge. But but we've got folks that are up to it, and and I, I hope we put the emphasis on that training and readiness in the current military that we had when we were in the military. I'm thinking maybe it's not there, and I hope it's. I, I hope I'm wrong, but uh, man, uh, we get it. No, I'm going to say the opposite. You, I mean, I'm sorry to, that you that you're thinking that, but based on the Top Gun bros that I heard talk a couple of years ago and stuff, and and that's just the Top Gun guys, and and I know our training is well integrated now, much better than it used to be. I I think the aviation guys are training very well. That's that's what I think they're doing. So, well, I I, I hope so, and that's my only wish is, man, we we've got to keep that pipeline going got to keep that that training and readiness sharp uh got to keep the guys ready to go on a moment's notice when called and uh, as long as we do that then the top guns legacy continues and lives on and, and the, the tip of the spear will be readied and uh and the other thing i found out teaching at air force is we're ubiquitous because we're slow we always have to be forward deployed um but that's that's the sailors cross the bear and there's a lot of pride that comes with those deployments and being on station and, and always serving the country, even when it's not a hot war, um, I am so proud to be part of the Naval Service and continue that and, and have and have now kids, you guys, guys like you and me have kids and damn, I say damn near grandkids carrying on that legacy. And it, it is a great, great fraternity to be part of. Awesome. <laughs> no Good kidding. Uh, I'll just say, Crunch, I'll give you a couple of seconds to think, but this this is not one of our longer episodes, but it's one of our richer episodes. I mean, you packed a lot into this, you know, hour and a few minutes, and uh, some great philosophy at the end. Philosophy at the end. So I need another beer now. So great philosophy at the end. Tung, thanks for uh, taking the time to join us today. Well, th- thanks for having me on, and thanks for thanks for doing the Tomcast. And, and keeping the legacy going and keeping the stories alive and, and keeping the fraternity, the brotherhood alive. And I, I mean that to my Tomcat brothers and sisters as well. So, Crunch, before you go, I just got an email today from a friend who forwarded a message from a 90 
plus year old former Grumman test pilot who watches the Tomcast. Wow, that's awesome. So that's awesome. I feel honored. That's great. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, gentlemen, this has been awesome. Tongue, thank you very much for joining us today. Bio, you get the last word. Fly Navy. <laughs> Thanks, Tongue. Thank you. You've been listening to the F-14 Tomcast, part of the Air Combat Experience, brought to you by BVR Productions. Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at F14Tomcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101, extension 3. That's 877-622-4101, extension 3. For updates on this podcast and our other military aviation-themed shows, Visit BVRPro.com and follow the Air Combat Experience on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Thanks for listening.